Well, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts, Acts 28. I know I said this would be our last sermon in Acts. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It really is. Um, If you're just joining us, we've been working through the book of Acts for almost all of last year, and, and today we have come to our final final sermon through this book. We're in Acts 28, going to be looking at verses 30 and 31. If you're using the the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 938. The title of the sermon is The Kingdom of God, and our keywords for our worshipers in training, kingdom, freedom, and salvation. Got it. No, freedom. I got the wrong order, but I don't know why that's so hard for me to remember those three. I write them down every week. but So we're in Acts 28, and as I said, the last 11 months or so, we've been considering Luke's orderly account and narrative of the things that Jesus continued to do and teach his followers from heaven after he was taken up and sat down at the right hand of God. And so as we come to the end of this book, it's fitting for us to ask, have we taken from Acts the intended message of Acts? To to know the answer to that, we have to know, well, what, what is the message of Acts? We said Luke is fundamentally writing to provide reassurance to believers about the, about the nature of the events surrounding Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the spread of the message about Jesus, and the nature of God's people following Jesus' ascension. So while this book does definitely give us instruction and insight for living godly lives and living together as a, a church for the glory of God now in 2024, the intent of the book is expressly said to be about the work of God, the work of the triune God, a work that uniquely commenced in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as well as His ascension to heaven as He now sits at God's right hand, ruling as the King of the cosmos. In other words, Acts is a book of assurance. It is a book of certainty. Patrick Schreiner writes, Luke provides certainty through an ordered narrative that God has fulfilled His purposes to Israel and the nations in Jesus Christ. He writes an arranged story to show Jesus and the Spirit are the Father's plan for His people both now and forevermore. At the highest level, Luke writes to convince his audience that the bumpy start of the community of God is the plan of God. So my desire for us through this sermon series in this book has been that we, Redeemer Baptist Church, would have rock-solid confidence that these events really happened. That they really are the work of God. That God really is accomplishing His saving purposes in the world. And that Jesus really is who He says He is. 
In other words, I want you to know with certainty for all of us who believe in Jesus, we really are the people of God. This story really is our story. Another way, or in a similar way that you could summarize all that we've seen in Acts is through the lens of promise, threat, and fulfillment. God made promises concerning His kingdom to Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Now these promises had seemingly failed when Jesus was crucified. But when He was raised from the dead, the question was asked, Lord, is is now the time that these promises are going to come true? Is now the time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, we saw in Acts 1 that when Jesus answers this question, He says, yes and no. Right? The, The borders of the kingdom, which is here, would not include just physical Israel. But the very ends of the earth itself. And shortly after that exchange in Acts 1, He poured out His Spirit upon the church in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. From there, Peter boldly preached the Gospel, concluding with these words, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And on that day, 3,000 Jews from every nation under heaven were converted to Christ. And so, things perhaps seem to be off to a pretty good start after all. But then in chapters 3-5, through we saw several lengthy threats come upon the church as Jewish leaders in Jerusalem arrested the disciples, arrested the apostles in particular, and various groups of them. They didn't just arrest them, but they beat them. They threatened them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. But in each of those accounts, in, in chapter 3, 4, and 5, God sovereignly worked to, to bring the apostles through each trial. He strengthened their faith and continued to add to their numbers. The Word of God increased and multiplied daily. In chapter 6, we saw another threat. And we learned that it wasn't just persecution from without, but it was division from within that the church faced. But the Lord was present with His people. And He provided wisdom. He provided more leaders to facilitate practical care among a growing church body. In chapters 7 and 8, we saw a massive, full-scale assault on the kingdom of God made by the kingdom of man. And it began with the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. From there, Saul of Tarsus, a devout religious leader who oversaw Stephen's execution, he led a charge to persecute and attempt to destroy this so-called sect that they called the Way. And yet, even in the scattering that took place when this persecution broke out, what actually occurred is that the church grew stronger. The influence of the church spread in the world. Because now, it wasn't just uh, Greek and Hebrew-speaking Jews coming into the kingdom. Now it was Samaritans. People with Jewish and Gentile heritage and a, a very confused and mixed up religion of their own were being saved out of that. And on top of that, we saw sorcerers and eunuchs being made kingdom citizens. In chapter 9, another serious turn took place. The resurrected Christ personally visited 
confronted and converted his chief opponent, this one, Saul of Tarsus. And while Saul was learning, growing, and maturing in his faith, he was getting ready for what God had called him to do, to be a witness to not just Jews, but to Gentiles as well. While that was taking place, God sent Peter, the apostle, to a Gentile's house. In Acts 10 and 11, he went to Cornelius' house. And there, Cornelius and all his house responded in faith to Peter's message and his Messiah. And so the gates are thrown wide open. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, now all belonging to the household of Abraham through faith in Jesus. The church continued to grow, even in the face of more persecution in chapter 12. But it was undaunted. And then in Genesis, uh, Genesis, that's next. It's on my mind. In Acts 13 through 18, Paul was, was, he was sent out on, on three separate missionary journeys. He sought to share his newly beloved message of the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted to share this with his countrymen, with the fellow, his fellow Jews in each place he went. But when they rejected his message... He was intentional to turn his efforts to focus on the Gentiles in each place. This, of course, led to some confusion in the church. There was uh, some needed deliberate teaching. We saw this in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council. What is the nature of the church now that you have Jews and Gentiles? Do Gentiles have to become Jews or not? And the answer was a resounding no. They must all come together through faith in Jesus. And all all throughout this book, we've also seen spiritual warfare as a prominent theme. Magicians and demon-possessed little girls standing up against the church, against the apostles. But each and every time, the church withstood the attack. God's sovereignty in the midst of all of it is over and over again set on clear display for us to to imbibe. Over and over, the power of God is set side by side with the power of man and the power of the spiritual forces of darkness. And over and over again, it is the power of God that prevails. No contest. And in the final chapters of the book, we saw Paul's undying drive to preach the gospel in Rome. The, the, center, the, the center of the world in, in some respects and the very edges of the world in other respects. It was a Gentile capital of the world and, and we saw him. That was in Acts 19. He wanted to get to Rome and for five years he struggled to get there. But finally, after years of delay, false imprisonments, miscarriages of justice, a gnarly shipwreck washing up on the shore of an unknown land, he finally got to Rome where sadly, once more, we saw the Jewish leaders there, like so many had before them, they rejected Paul and his message. And so he pronounced, we saw last week, once more that he was turning his focus to the Gentiles. Not to say that no Jews could come to faith. Of course, he always wanted that. But his ministry would now aim the Gentiles. And so today, we come to the end of the matter. We've been reminded 
especially in the, the last bit, as we've seen Paul trying to get to Rome, that it is often through difficulty and disappointment that God calls His people to obey. It is not ease and luxury that we are often presented with as the path. It is often hardship. But the book does not end on a dour note. The book doesn't end with Paul's rejection of the Jews. Nor does it even end with a mere hopeful turning of his attention to the Gentiles. It ends with definitive triumph. And I really just have one point to make from these verses. And I want to give you that point now and then read them. And then we'll get to work. The point is this. Jesus kept His promise. The kingdom of God has come to earth and it roams free. And this point will lead us into some applications that we'll seek to draw from the the book as a whole, and then we'll bring it to a close. So let me read just these these two verses here, Acts 28, 30, and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We see here in these two verses, as I said, Jesus kept His promise. The kingdom of God is here and roaming free. But before we really consider that thought, we need to admit something. There's something a bit odd about the book of Acts and its ending. Probably in your mind, you're thinking, is this it? Is, is the book finished or unfinished? Did Luke die, perhaps, before he could conclude his great work? What happened to Paul? Maybe Luke just didn't know how to end a book. Maybe there's a, a third Lucan narrative out there somewhere that tells us the rest about what happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? In other words, we're thinking, we come to the end here, is this some kind of incomplete accident to which we should confidently reply, the end of this book is no accident, nor is it incomplete. There are no, there are no loose ends in Acts. The task foretold in Acts 1.8 that to the apostles, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In a very real sense, it is finished. Luke laid down a very clear thesis for this book. God's kingdom was coming into the world through the witness of the apostles. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it has done that. Richard Gaffin makes this point when he says, Acts documents a completed, finished, and apostolic task. Acts records the finished founding of the one holy Catholic, that is universal church, as also apostolic. In other words, the church's founding is complete by the end of the book of Acts. The end-time temple has come in Jesus, and He has poured out His Spirit on all flesh. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, young and old, rich and poor, 
etc. And this kingdom temple has been settled on earth. The task given to the apostles in Acts 1-8 is finished. And yet, the, the way the book ends also communicates to us that while the task given to them is finished, that does not mean there is nothing left to do. There are still expansions to be made. There's ground to be covered. There are peoples to be welcomed in. The New Testament, after all, does not end with the book of Acts. So we're going to consider these final words together for a few moments then, with that in mind. And we'll close with some application. Luke says Paul was proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. He was living there for two years at his own expense, possibly able to pick his trade back up as a tent maker. Remember, he lived with relative freedom even though he was under Roman guard. He showed hospitality to all who came to him, and he proclaimed the kingdom, and he taught about its king. Now we need to remember, as I said, this this book isn't about Paul. This ending isn't about Paul. If you're curious about Paul, just as an aside, it's most likely that after this two-year stint, he was formally released from prison, visited a few more places, wrote a couple more New Testament letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. He was arrested again, tried, and eventually beheaded by the Romans by maybe 64 B.C. or so, A.D. or so. But whatever the case about Paul, remember, he's not writing a biography, and so that's why we don't get anything more about, about Paul, because this is about the kingdom and not about Paul. At the end of the day, this is about a king and a kingdom. A, a king who made a promise and has brought that promise to fulfillment. The story ends triumphantly. The king's servant, while in chains, is proclaiming a kingdom and teaching about a king with all boldness and without hindrance. See, these are two very important words, and it's important that they end. They are the last words of the book. No hindrance. He's unhindered. He has boldness. Boldness means there's, there's no internal uh, obstacles to his proclaiming of the kingdom and teaching about Jesus. No pride, no fear, no apathy, no despair. Nothing internally within Paul is preventing him from carrying on his work. He's bold. But he's also unhindered. There are no external obstacles either. Crowds, religious or civil leaders, persecution, spiritual forces, none of them were able to interfere with this proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so, Paul is bound in chains and the kingdom is unchained. John Stott makes some useful observations about these two years that Paul spent in imprisonment here. He says that while Paul's arrival in Rome as a prisoner may not have been what any of us would have concocted for ourselves if we were in Paul's shoes. Right? It's not the way that I would have planned it. If I was, in, if I was Paul in Acts 19 thinking I'm on to Rome, and he said that because he, he wants to go on to Spain after that. So he's probably not anticipating 
years of prison time to get there. And yet, it actually served a great purpose for the kingdom in his bearing witness to the kingdom. As As a prisoner, his witness, first, Stott notes, was expanded, actually, since he testified in the presence of Caesar. Jesus had promised Paul in Acts 27, when they were on the soon-to-be-at-the-bottom-of-the-ocean ship, he promised Paul, you will stand trial before Caesar. Now Luke doesn't recount that, that trial for us here, but it's striking nonetheless to think that Nero himself would have heard the Apostle Paul preaching Christ. Now, if you know anything about Nero... You know, he certainly went on to reject this message and do unbelievably horrible things to Christians. But nevertheless, Paul stood before him, and Paul was no, right? He he stood before no obscure man, but before kings. And, And perhaps what other officials in Nero's office might have heard Paul and believed? Paul had access to the Caesar of Rome. He wouldn't have had such things if he were free. Stott also notes that Paul's witness was enriched during these years of imprisonment. Right? Not just these two here in Rome, but think about the, the five before that. Think of the letters that Paul wrote from Rome in this imprisonment. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to just set before you the big three? Is there any bitterness detected in those letters? Is there any discouragement or frustration or angst or anger? No. What do you find when you read Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians? You find joy and peace and love and grace. Stott writes of those three letters, he says, They set forth more powerfully than anywhere else the supreme, sovereign, undisputed, and universal lordship of Christ. The person and work of Jesus are given cosmic proportions. And he asks, was it not through this very confinement that Paul's eyes were opened to see the victory of Christ and the fullness of his life, power, and freedom which is given to those who belong to Jesus. Paul's ministry is expanded and enriched in his time in prison. But thirdly, Stott notes, his witness was authenticated by his imprisonment. Paul really believed what he preached. He had said back in Acts uh, 21, he says, I'm willing to face imprisonment and death. For the Lord Jesus. Prior to that in Acts 20. He says I don't count my life of any value. If only I may finish my course. In the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he had an opportunity to prove. Those words to be true. In this time. He did both of those things. Suffered imprisonment. And eventually, we know, from church history, he died. 
So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this book, this great book with its long passages and its its central theme of a king who has come? What can we draw from it? Well, first... Are you well persuaded that you have been reconciled to God? It's been hard to get Paul's words to Agrippa out of my head. Remember Agrippa, his final trial before sailing for Rome? Agrippa, Agrippa asked him, Paul, would you in a short time persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Are you a Christian, friend? Do you know and love this Christ whom Paul knew and loved so dearly? This king whom Paul proclaims, the one who died, and behold, is alive forevermore. He has the the keys to death and Hades. What a shame it would be for anyone to sit through this entire book, or even part of it, even one sermon of it, and, and walk away at enmity with God. To walk away an enemy of the cross. To walk away a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light has come And it welcomes the weak and the strong, the poor and the rich. And so, the first thing that we must do as we square with this book is ask ourselves, am I a Christian? Have I looked to King Jesus and found peace? Do I know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ? My Lord and my Christ. If so, secondly, are you committed to God's Word? We've seen all throughout this book a staunch commitment to the Scriptures in the Apostles. The Apostles in the early church, they were committed to the Word of God. They preached from the Old Testament Scriptures. They sought direction and clarity from them as they sought to carry on their ministries They read them, taught them, absorbed them. And so they lay down for us an example to follow. Right? If you you would know God's will for your life, you must be a man or woman of the book. If you want to know the way to heaven, you must be of the book. If you want to grow in grace, you must be of the book. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, you must be of this book. Third, are you committed to prayer? Peter, Paul, the early church, they were prayers. They prayed in Acts 1, waiting for the Holy Spirit. They prayed throughout all their legal troubles in those early chapters. And they prayed, think in Acts chapter 4, they didn't just pray for deliverance, they prayed for boldness. Paul prayed for his pagan shipmates during the storm. Like Jesus, 
They were people of prayer. Are we? Are you? Are you personally? Is your family a family of prayer? Is our church a church of prayer? Seriously, think about it. How, how much have you, how much do you pray? How much have you prayed today? How much have you prayed this week? This month? How much have you prayed this year? How fervently do we pray? What do you pray for? Do we pray for spiritual things? Or do we only pray for material things? Temporary things. And those, of course, are not bad things to pray for. But what takes up the bulk of our prayers? Are you thankful in your prayers? Do you offer prayers of thanksgiving? Or are we just looking for God to make our lives easier? So we must be people of the book and people of prayer. Fourth, we learn from Acts, are you committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Even those that you find difficult to love. Right? Early in Acts 2 and 4, we saw this clearly. The church sought desperately to meet the needs of others as they had opportunity. No one considered his stuff his own, but willingly parted with it to bless someone in need. But it wasn't just, they weren't just called to to care for their best friends, people who were just like them, that they had everything in common with, They faced struggles. We saw this all throughout. The the church struggled early on as Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles came together in one people of God. Here's the deal. Acts teaches us there's no room in God's kingdom for ethnocentrism. While we, we don't need to pretend that there are not some things genuinely better about this culture over that culture, not all cultures are the same. Not all have equally valid values. But we don't want to fall into the ditch that says, well, my culture is inherently better than all others in every conceivable way. And God couldn't possibly bring other people in to the kingdom here at RBC because they're just not like me. Acts teaches us there is ample room at the cross for people who are different And in particular, people who are just made of the wrong stuff. Acts 8, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He not only wasn't culturally everything he needed to be, he had a specific, a very clear prohibition from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23. No eunuch could enter the assembly. But now in Christ, all that is done away with. And he says to Philip, there's water. What prevents me from entering the assembly through baptism? What's Philip say? Nothing. Come on. And he baptizes him. 
Christ's kingdom is vast. It is wide. And we should rejoice when he welcomes in those we might initially consider to be unworthy. Why is it so important that we recognize God welcomes the unworthy? Because unworthy is a perfect descriptor of each of us as it concerns merits for belonging in this kingdom. And final question. Do you trust God? Now, I don't, I'm not talking about trust here purely in the sense of do you have faith? I asked that question already. For now, for a while now, these last several questions, I'm, I'm talking specifically to Christians. And so, Christian, I'm asking you, do you trust God? Do you have trust, confidence, assurance, not just that God loves you, but that He knows what He is doing? Even when you face unbelievable pain and suffering. Think about any, just about almost any point in this book. But we've been with Paul for so long. Think about Paul. Paul could probably pretty easily look at his life and, and have wondered, does God really know what he's doing? But he never does that. Paul never makes that leap. He never concludes that God is either incapable or in the sense that he's not strong enough to do what he wants or that he's incompetent, that he doesn't know what he wants or how to bring it about. Paul never makes that leap and neither should we. The book of Acts wants you to rest assured That God Almighty is not only completely for His people, but He is perfectly capable to care for us well. So whatever you're going through, you can trust the Lord with it. You can know that His sovereign care for you also doesn't negate your own agency and your responsibility. We've seen this in Acts. Not just do you trust God to care for your life, but Do you trust God enough to actually live in obedience before Him? You still have to live. You still have to decide. You have to make choices. And as you are continuing to depend upon the Lord through wise living, you can know that He's bringing about His perfectly good and just purposes in the world. God is going to care for you, beloved. Now maybe, maybe that means breaking you out of prison overnight like he did Peter in Acts 12. Remember that? But maybe God's care for you looks like you being left in prison by a crooked magistrate for two years. And then shipwrecking on your way to another two-year stay in prison. Right? But... In both cases, Peter and Paul, whether released in a night or left there for two years, we have to square with this. They were both brutally murdered later on. History tells us Peter, crucified upside down. Paul, beheaded. But listen to what Paul writes.
in 2 Timothy 4. Beginning in verse 16. He writes this. 2 Timothy, likely Paul's final letter. He says, As at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. We saw that in Acts 22 and 23. But he goes on, he says, May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. We saw that, Acts 23, 11. He says, He stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Possibly this is a reference to his release from Nero after these two years of imprisonment in Rome. But whatever the case, he concludes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, what on earth do you mean he will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom? You've got a beheading coming. Well, he must mean that the kingdom is something beyond merely this life. And so, if that's the case, if Paul can die resting assured that he will be brought into God's heavenly kingdom, we can say with Paul, come what may. God is with us and will bring us safely into His heavenly kingdom. A kingdom which, by the way, if we've been paying attention to Acts at all, this kingdom has come to earth in part already. And day by day, it is growing and filling up the world with the glory of God Almighty as the waters cover the sea. Even when that is imperceptible to our faithless eyes, it is inescapable. That's why Paul is free proclaiming the kingdom it holds for us holds forth for us that tension a kingdom spreading even in the midst of persecution even in the midst of a situation that looks bleak this spreading kingdom is inescapable there's no turning back there's no getting out from under its power and its might and so let us rejoice That God has broken into the world and is working to overcome the dreadful effects of our sin and rebellion against Him. And may we, like Paul here in Rome, in whatever condition we find ourselves, may we plead with the Lord that He might use us to advance His kingdom further with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen.